You're listening to Potluck, the podcast that stirs up a unique flavor of people, culture, and brands in Asia. Hosted, as always, by Scott and Drago. Hello and welcome to Potluck Podcast. I'm Drago. And I'm Scott. Drago, how are you doing and what's new? Scott, I've had my second job now. A very interesting experience, I have to say. A really interesting mixture of existential dread and hope. A real surge of hope, you know. Not only that something is actually happening in my life, but that something (laughs) positive is happening. What's new with you, Scott? Well, actually, um, I had my first dose earlier today as well. Uh, yeah, all very efficient. Also pretty surreal, uh, I must say. You know, whether it paves the way for travel this year still feels pretty unlikely uh, here in Singapore, but it's good to see things picking up steam. Ah, man. Regardless of how this travel thing pans out, I think we're making history here. Do you realize this is the first time in potluck history that both hosts have been vaccinated. <laughs> Smallpox, Hep B, all that, you know. And now, SARS-CoV-2. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but, you know, the, the virus we all know is COVID-19. I feel this is a great achievement for humanity and uh, for our people here in Singapore. Team effort. And on this positive note, let's get into it. With us today is Vasuki Shastri. Uh, he's kindly joined us to stir the pot and talk about his recent book, Has Asia Lost It? Dynamic Past, Turbulent Future. Vasuki is one of these people for whom on LinkedIn you, you have to scroll down to click show more experiences multiple times. Let's take a closer look. He starts his career in journalism with Business India and India Today in Mumbai then works with the Business Times in Jakarta and Singapore. After that, Vasuki is in the press center of the IMF, acting as their Asia-Pacific spokesperson during the Asia financial crisis. There's an entire podcast episode in there alone, I think. But moving on, Vasuki then becomes head of public affairs for the IMF and Standard Chartered Bank in London. Today, he's an associate Asia-Pacific fellow at Chatham House, a think tank, and is based in Washington, D.C. and London. Vasuki, thanks for coming on. And have I left anything out of your eventful biography? Thank you so much for the generous introduction, Drago. Uh, I think you've covered a lot of ground, and I'm probably going to use this for my own marketing promotion at some time. But I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming on, Buzuki. Um to, to break the ice on Potluck, we ask our guests to project a little, to humour us a little at the beginning of the show uh, by sharing three ingredients, if you like. So these being perhaps ingredients that have characterised our guests' career journeys, made them who they are. Um, and we're curious, Buzuki, what what would your three ingredients be? You know, I thought of myself as a classic Indian thali. Uh, A thali is a circular steel uh, uh, plate. And, you know, uh, people talk about America being a melting pot. Mm -hmm. And my own characterization of India has always been it is like a thali because everyone in India literally has this circular steel plate on which they uh, consume food every day. And what goes onto this plate is about six or seven small bowls. Of, of, of various kinds of food. I mean, it can be vegetarian, it can be non-vegetarian, topped off with some rice and bread. And that for me really exemplifies India. 
where you know this incredibly diverse country uh, 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 so you can be in kerala but you still have the circular steel plate on which you put your your own regional cuisine and the plate in a way exemplifies the idea of uh, india and and so if i looked at my own steel thali it probably would be south indian uh, cuisine mm. in in uh, in what is on the plate but this is the original tasting menu long before michelin <laughs> star chefs uh, claimed they invented uh, the tasting menu yeah. so you can have a little bit of everything in order to taste uh, the cuisine and and there's a communal nature to this as as well uh, there's a strong communitarian ethos built into this so i'm not much of a chef so i cannot actually share the ingredients but i thought <laughs> i'd put this concept forward about where i about where i come from originally and you know uh, where i am at the moment it's all about the melting pot mm. but i think the steel thali it, it better presents the idea of india I think we often see the the tally and the and the Indian restaurants here here in Singapore. So certainly, uh, wets my appetite for for that kind of meal again. Um, just for those quickly who are who are perhaps new to the Potluck podcast, um, in this second season we actually divide our discussion into three bite sized segments, tally sized segments, if you will. Um, first, we lift the lid on Asia. Second, we uh, go about hacking some humans, and finally, we burn some brands. So. You can listen to each of those segments standalone or save yourself for the full feast version. Great. Now we're going into a section of the conversation where we talk about topics related to Asia, topics that are interested, little known, or simply important, all through the lens of practitioners who live and breathe the region. Uh, and we call it lifting the lid on Asia. Now, um, Vasuki, let's go straight into your book, um, Has Asia Lost It? Dynamic Past, Turbulent Future. So, has Asia lost it and what's with the turbulent future? Um, can you please share with us the main premise of your book? I think we should start with looking at and understanding what Asia means to us. And, you know, over the years, I've come to believe that this is a very casual, lazy label that we attach to an incredibly diverse region uh, uh, which includes economically it includes uh, highly developed advanced countries like Japan and the Asian tigers it mm. also includes a vast mass of uh, developing asia and you know i would place china india and indonesia in this category who all embarked on this development journey in the last uh, few decades but there's also diversity obviously in ethnicity in religion I think so I think you know one one request I would have for all of us Asia fanatics is we mm. should we should probably think of a different label in in describing the region and one attempt that I make uh, in the book is to differentiate between dev developing Asia uh, which is where the majority of the 4.6 billion people live and developed Asia you know where you are in Singapore Hong Kong Taiwan Korea and Japan I don't spend a lot of time in the book worrying about uh, the future of of uh, developed Asia but I do worry a lot about the future of this incredibly diverse developing region uh, very different political systems very different social contexts and I think one thing that has bound this together mainly from the thought leadership uh, community I describe them as thought leadership mafia in the book is this notion that high rates of growth that we've seen in asia for the last 
decades. That alone is a convenient way of describing the dynamism of the region. And I think for a long period of time, uh, at least until the early 2000s, that was absolutely accurate. And I think if you looked at uh, Japan, looked at the Tigers, looked at China's emergence in the late 1970s, you could say that high rates of economic growth are translating into social outcomes. You're, you're seeing the beginnings of a dynamic middle class, as we saw in Japan in the 1960s. And, and everyone assumes that this story storyline is continuing. And, and my thesis in the book is Asia, developing Asia, at least, is going to go through a rough period mm. in the next few decades, mainly because I don't think you can extrapolate previous performance and assume that uh, the future is going to remain the same. Mm. So, you know, that's a fallacy that all economists uh, make. Uh, but even if you look at the uh, uh, geopolitical environment, you look at the environment for globalization, all of that has changed, and Asia needs to adapt. And the frustrating part of this is there's very little debate within the region on what that ad adaptation would look like. And that is why I say the future is going to be turbulent. I think this leads us to your term, to a term you've coined in the book, disutopia. I'm quite fond of it, I have to say. Can you, can you please tell us what it stands for and why you think it's important? Yeah, I think Asia has two realities as we know it. We've got uh, utopian high-income Asia. And, and, you know, anyone, you know, I originally moved to Singapore in uh, 1990. And at that point in time, it, it really looked like the East Asian economic miracle. Uh, uh, that virus, that, that's what people were talking about at that time, a completely different positive virus, uh, I must add, uh, that, you know, it would manifest itself across the region. And, and you'd have high incomes, you'd have high uh, positive social outcomes. And I think at this point in time, we really have these split realities. So you've got this utopian Asia, uh, the moment you land at Changi Airport or, or in uh, Hong Kong, uh, you get the sense that you're really in the future. But certainly, I feel that when I fly into these two cities from, uh, from London or uh, Washington, D.C. And then you've got the other Asia, which is highly dystopian, mainly because you know, high rates of economic growth have translated in, into reduction of poverty. I think we cannot deny that. You know, of course, China's story is off the charts in terms of reduction of poverty. But even India, Indonesia, other developing countries in the region have made tremendous progress. But something has happened to this economic narrative in the last five or 10 years that gives me pause. And this is mainly because you're seeing economic opportunity. Uh, if you look at the uh, economic ladder, at the very high end, a Asia, particularly developing Asia, is flourishing with mm. billionaires. It looks like it's very easy mm. uh, to become a billionaire in the region, 1,147, according to the latest Forbes ranking. But something is happening in the lower middle, uh, lower middle class and the lower class. Uh, this is a very aspirational class. This comprises the largest segment of population in the region. And you're beginning to see that their opportunities are shriveling away. And the pandemic is going to make things worse. Uh, so, you know, in, in that sense, we've got to look at the dystopian future for this region. 
And, you know, say all is not lost. So I think there could be policy interventions. Mm. I certainly don't belong uh, to the school of thought. Uh, so the title of the book is definitely not the coming collapse of Asia. Mm. Uh, I don't believe in that. But I think policymakers really need to reset uh, uh, their approach. And I think certainly the pandemic provides that opportunity. We'd like to talk in, in a bit more detail about the role of growth and the lower middle class, as you're describing the book later on. But, um, you know, maybe it's sort of a natural instinct to to kind of look for patterns. Yeah. And um, I'd like to kind of, you know, talk a bit about um, about consumption, you know, taking place across Asia, something that, you know, in the book that you are uh, describing as something that could potentially be let me know if i'm if i'm understanding this correctly could potentially be a point of convergence across asia so obviously it's difficult to draw parallels between countries in different parts of the world um but if we look at if we take a step back and look at that conventional traditional myth of asian consumption that uh, uh, you know at, at least seemed or or uh, even was perhaps back in the day based on some more traditional values um uh, a, a, a more holistic, considered approach towards society and nature, if you will. Um, but um, we're also seeing data that suggests that conspicuous consumption, that consumer debt are on the rise. Um, you mentioned in the book that that's something that we're seeing in uh, Singapore and Korea. Uh, you're saying that China's going down that path. I think there's also data to show that, say, in the likes of Thailand, debt is close to 90% of GDP. So we, we're seeing some of the both the developing and the, the uh, developed as well as the developing countries kind of being in the same boat in this regard. So um, do you think in terms of, uh, you know, trajectories related to consumption, do you feel Asia's looking more and more like the West or is there more, a, a more complex story there? Yeah, I mean, I would say more complex story two decades ago when a lot of people propagated this idea that confusion values essentially meant that people believed in thrift. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I uh, at the time of the Asian financial crisis in 98-99, uh, for example, in Korea, there was this belief that consumption could never be the driver of economic growth because this entire country was built on the proposition of export-led uh, uh, manufacturing, mm -hmm. that, you know, Koreans would never consume at the levels of the average American consumer. And we know that to be completely untrue. And literally what happened a few years after Korea emerged from uh, that financial crisis, consumption uh, became one of the drivers of economic growth. And I think there's a positive aspect to mm -hmm. having consumption as a driver of growth, uh, you know, I would point to Indonesia, you know, when Indonesia emerged from the Asian financial crisis mm. uh, and commodity prices were still very low at that point in time, people were worrying about, you know, where is Indonesia going to find the drivers of growth? And it turned out to be consumption. It turned out to be the ordinary Indonesian mm. consumer who really held up the economy for several years. So, you know, so, and I think within the region, there's very little debate on the role of consumption, on the appropriate role of consumption. Mm. You know, be, be it as made that, you know, the average Asian consumer is never likely to consume the way the average American consumer mm. is going to. But I think there's some typologies of consumption trends 
which points to that in the long run, you know, uh, John Maynard Keynes used to say, whenever people uh, asked him about uh, long-term prospects, that in the long run, we're all going to be dead. But, you know, mm. paraphrasing that uh, a little bit, I think in the long run, all of us will become American-type con- consumers. <laughs> where, where, and, and I think governments will realize that this is a very powerful proposition uh, for uh, growth, particularly at a time when there are worries about globalization, trade. There's all this talk about decoupling, which hopefully will not materialize. So mm-hmm. countries will have to find domestic drivers of growth. And it's very easy, I think, for the Indias, Indonesias, and Chinas of the world mm-hmm. to find domestic consumption as a driver, You know, because in each of these countries, actually, trade as a percentage of GDP is still relatively low compared with uh, Hong Kong or Singapore or Taiwan. Mm. But at the same time, I think these governments need to watch it because it's very easy. And, you know, uh, uh, credit card uh, usage, for example, seems to function on mathematical uh, exponential rates of growth. And and very simply, you, you will find out, as you know, Indian policymakers found out a few years ago, that, you know, buying things on credit buying things on installments, all of this may point towards a very hopeful middle-class story, mm. but they do have financial stability implications. Mm. So, you know, so can Asia build a sustainable path for consumption without without having, without borrowing the problems uh, that America mm. has had over the last few decades? And I think, you know, from a reasonable uh, policymaker's point of view, they definitely definitely should be looking at consumption as a driver of growth in this very uncertain transition phase on on whether exports can continue to be can continue to be the spectacular success as they've been over the last few decades So Vasuki, we're going to circle back and, and, and delve into a couple of the key uh, chapters or circles, if you like, in the book a little bit later. But one thing we wanted to get your take on was that obviously the, the book stands out very much on, on, this, on the bookshelf, if you like, on the store shelf, you know, with its sobering and, and somewhat you know, contrarian title. And as you reference in the book, there's a whole industry of experts out there championing the rise of Asia. Uh, you mentioned you were once a card-carrying member of that group. Um, so we were curious, in, in that light, how has the book been received and has there been any surprises to you regarding the response or the debate that you've perhaps stirred up? No, the biggest surprise for me, both in the uh, in the reviews that I've seen and in the conversations I've had, mm. you know, I was expecting uh, pushback. I was expecting mm. serious pushback. Mm. And for me, the most surprising aspect of it is there hasn't been pushback. There's been a lot of convergence of views, even amongst people who I, you know, I originally thought would really mm-hmm. disagree with the fundamental proposition in the book. And and their thoughts have been, yes, there, there is something there. From a pure book writer's perspective, you know, I, I, I certainly wish there was a little bit more uh, pushback that people really challenge mm. the uh, uh, assumptions that I make in the book, because that's what you need. You need a reasonable debate mm, sure. uh, to take place. So there's been no pushback. The other surprising aspect that I find is the reaction of young people mm. uh, to the book who really feel that it resonates uh, uh, with with their aspirations, 
with the challenges that they face uh, as they you know make their way not only out of this pandemic uh, but hopefully make their way into into a more lucrative job market and you know that has been underestimated and undercovered that entire challenge that the millennial class in asia is facing mm. in in really living up to the expectations of their parents certainly living up to the living standards uh, that their parents uh, not only aspired to but achieved in their lifetime and and that's going to be a much more difficult story because all the economic data on social mobility really points towards uh, uh, the fact that inequality is rising and social mobility is stalling mm. and if there's one lesson we need to take away uh, is when you've got lots of disaffected youth uh, in in your population mm. over a period of time that leads to social unrest absolutely and and i guess very fitting the leads to to my next question in terms of the obviously we see a lot of social unrest in in the us in the last couple of years um, and you're obviously us based now um and you and your think tank role at chatham house so we were very keen as as obviously westerners residing in asia ourselves but what what's the take been like from perhaps us readers or thinkers or even the, you know western uh, you know thinkers for that like if you have you noticed any um you know misconceptions or or preconceptions being being challenged perhaps apps by by the topic yeah you know um, i think the first thing is even if you're an asia watcher in london or mm. in washington dc you know you're not immune to what is happening in your own backyard mm. so i think a lot of reflections of policy makers certainly you're seeing this in in comments made by senior officials of the biden administration for example that america cannot lead if america does not fix its own domestic uh, political problems mm-hmm. and and these these are you know political in nature social in nature in many ways uh, uh, the themes that are highlighted in the book even in an advanced rich country like america when there's growing uh, inequalities manifested itself already in massive uh, social unrest so people are beginning to see the world and this is not a typical washington or london but people are beginning to see the world around these cross cutting themes of inequality social mobility climate change you know how do you bridge gender divide how do you make sure that technology will have a beneficial impact these in the old days these used to be developed country problems and developing country problems i think what the last 5 years has really taught us is you know all of these are global problems and and the only way you can help resolve them obviously national governments have primary responsibility at the end of the day but i think the policy talk all now is how can countries help each other in this in this very uncertain economic period so to that extent there is less triumphalism which is mm. very good you don't need uh, uh, you don't need to live in a world where a set of countries say they have figured out the path and others should follow i think all of us now are in this learning phase because each one of us has been impacted Uh, by the social and political fault lines uh, mm. over the past decade. Now, most of our listeners uh, tend to be marketers. Um, I was curious if you've had the chance to speak to any marketers about the book, uh, and you know, what do you think marketers and market researchers could take away from here? Well, I think uh, uh, the market marketing and marketing research community has a huge role to play in really holding the mirror up to the region. 
And I'm sure even if you're doing more granular research on, on a product, on, on, on you know, a social media platform, or on consumer perceptions, and I think capturing not just what this group of consumers is thinking about consuming, mm. uh, but also mm. their hopes and aspirations. Uh, and I think that's a very, and I think you see that in, in, in Asia, political market research is still mm. in the nascent stage. Mm. I mean, in many countries, of course, uh, opinion polls are usually contentious and controversial. So there's no feedback channel that people receive uh, that, you know, either business leaders or political leaders or even the policy community receives on what exactly is on the mind of consumers, right? And so, you know, your your typical mm-hmm. instinct as a market researcher working for a client would be to find out, uh, uh, you know, consumer perceptions about, about a particular brand. But I think market research companies can really play a very, very important role in, in feeling the pulse of the consumer on a broad range of political, economic, social issues. You know, w- what are their concerns? Uh, what are their thoughts? And, and, mm-hmm. and what should be the policy path for the country? It is this kind of granular data which will really be rich and, and which will really help. Much of the research that I did in, in uh, getting this book done, I was trying to find this, this data, you know, <laughs> You've got some of these syndicated research. Uh, you've got the Pew Research, of course, mm-hmm. coming out of Washington, D.C., which asks people a set of questions about their perceptions of America. But I kind of wish there was a similar thing uh, uh, for the region, uh, which which goes beyond the usual question of, you know, consumer wants to buy a Bentley car or, or uh, a five-bedroom apartment. Mm. Fantastic. This is like music to our ears. I think in in a very kind of very, very small way, this is what we're trying to do with our podcast to bring some granularity uh, to to the way we understand people's lives in Asia. Okay. Um, this has been great so far. Thanks for listening to the first part of our conversation with Vasuki Shastri, Lifting the Lead on Asia, where we discuss his book, Has Asia Lost It? In part two, Hacking Humans. And no, we're not chopping people to pieces. Uh, we'll delve deeper into a couple of essays uh, or circles, if you will, as he calls them in the book. So stay tuned.